Okay, I heard this new theory online that is just making my whole life. Okay, so you know how you and I, we're cold people. And I don't, I mean, personality-wise, maybe, but temperature-wise, cold people. Yes, all the time. I take a nuclear hot shower. Same. Okay, okay. Oh, absolutely scalding. Yeah. Yes, burn the flesh off your bones. Okay, so this gal on the internet said, you know, women are often really cold because we're in spaces where the temperature is set for men to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. In offices, we wear cardigans, blah, blah, blah. So when we get into the shower, we make it nuclear hot because we're in charge. We can be warm. (laughs) I, yeah, I mean, yes, I make it nuclear hot so I can be warm. I don't know if that's like an in charge thing so much as the shower is just like the one place I know. Like if I'm cold, like you know when you get cold sometimes it's like to your bones where you're like yes. nothing will warm you up. Yes. I will just sit in the shower. In the yes. like the hot spray. Also, <laughs> nothing validates feelings of any kind like literally sitting down mm-hmm. in a shower. Oh yeah. Absolutely. You got to sit in a shower about it. <laughs> that makes it real. <laughs> we were just staying in Malibu for a little getaway in this kind of Airbnb. And one of the three showers no one would use because you couldn't change the temperature. It was set to one nuclear hot temperature and it was broken. So no one would use it. And I was like, hell yeah, this is my shower now, mortals. <laughs> yeah. Fire cannot burn the dragon. Don't be a coward about it. Exactly. And it was one of those walk down into it showers. Oh, my God. No curtain, no tub, just stone walk in. And there was a greenhouse in the same room and all the plants would get water from the steam. That's so cool. It was bananas. It That, that bathroom had a wall-to-wall mirror, which is entirely too much perception. Oh, my parents' house is like that. They, oh, I remember. The person they bought it from was obsessed with mirrors and they had all this plastic surgery and like so there's the the their bathroom like the master bathroom has mirrors on either side so you see like 800 of yourself okay so fully do whatever you want with your body perceive your human form as much as you want to but not me no Mm -mm. no absolutely not i am trying to be in a bronte book covering all the mirrors with cloth I don't know if yeah. they even do that. It just seems like a Wuthering Heights kind of thing. It, it's, it is Bronte energy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. I bring the Bronte energy. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison. I bring the Jane Austen energy. I was hoping you'd say that. This is Willing and Fable, the <laughs> podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Every week, We research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So you can support the podcast in a multitude of ways, such as by checking out our website, where we have merch and recommendations and show notes and many other fun things for you to find. Or you can become a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable, just like Steph F. Thank you so much for joining the Willing and Fable fam, Steph. We have been getting, I feel like we've been getting to meet new people basically every week lately. It's really fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And just thank you so much for supporting the podcast. We get to keep the mics on because of our patrons, and we really appreciate it. We really, really do. Another thing that you can do to support the show is by checking out our sponsors. 
Greenleaf Geek has been our nerdy partner in crime for more than a few episodes now, and we are still so happy to partner with Leah. If you would like custom, handmade, resin dice, her books are open for commissions. If you need a new dice tray, if you're looking to buy an entire horde of curated dice sets, I personally really need someone at my gaming table to get the mini festive circus or mini festive mosaic sets from Chessex that Leah has stocked because otherwise I'm going to buy them. And, you know, one of those two things needs to happen so I can play with them. (laughs) Yeah, someone needs to own them. Someone in your vicinity. That's what I'm hearing. It's like a little dragon horde of, of dice. Clicky clacky math rocks. Actually, at this point, I did the math half. No, just over half of my dice come from Greenleaf Geek. And I have a lot of dice. (laughs) I love that. So (laughs) you too can see all the fun geeky gear that we're talking about by shopping at greenleafgeek.com or following at Greenleaf Geek on Instagram and Twitter. And when you go to her website, make sure to use the coupon code FABLE. That's F-A-B-L-E for 10% off your order at greenleafgeek.com. Some restrictions apply. And Tracy, there's one more thing. Or <laughs> you can support this podcast by researching your genealogy and finding the most distant relative you can think of. Then call them up and tell them about this podcast. But no matter what, we're happy you joined us today. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Tracy, all I can picture with that is taking a Ouija board and calling up ancestors mean like hey hi so i'm listening to this podcast and you who don't even know what a podcast is because this is so far past your time need to get on board give it five stars yeah that also counts that fits the bill (laughs) (laughs) if we have ghost listeners if if you live in a place that has ghosts and you know that the ghosts are listening at the same time you're listening i need to know I need the story. Yes, please write in uh, willingandfable at gmail.com and send us that story and we can read it on our Listener Legends episodes. Absolutely. And then, you know, you're listening, hearing facts, hearing stories, and the ghost just goes, no, I'm sick of these girls and like throws something across the room. Poltergeist style. Oof, I would love to annoy a ghost to that extent. I so badly want to be a ghost hunter person, but I also feel like I'd get squidged out. I mean, I'd do it. I wouldn't chicken out, but I'd be squidged out. That's the out. difference between the two of us. Uh, I would chicken out probably. No. Oh, my God. No. If I am staying overnight in a spooky place, you are stuck with me. I know. That's why I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so unrelated to any mm-hmm. of this, Trace... What the heck are we talking about today? I'm really excited for today's episode. So if you know anything about me, you probably know that I love coffee and dogs and my cat Lola. So I was really excited to cover today's topic. I love dogs so much that when I was in college, people used to like try to distract me because I would genuinely be mid-conversation and if I saw a dog, I'd just run off. And so my friends would be like, we need to get to where we're going. Don't let Tracy see the dog. (laughs) That stresses me out so much, seeing a dog on the street with my friends who just go to pet everything, because we don't know that dog. That dog could be... You always ask. You always ask. You ask to pet dogs. Yes, but not everyone is as in that pocket of knowledge as you are. Some people just see dog, pet dog. 
They do. And it was my my older sister having a dog that is not friendly with strangers that really taught me, be respectful, listen to what the dog wants. But I love dogs very, 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 very much. So today we're talking about one of the most famous dogs of all time, Cerberus or Kerberus. I looked it up. It can be either. Are you kidding me? Yeah, the ancient Greek is Kerberus, but it has been Americanized and Cerberus is considered also fine. Yeah. Uh, If someone said Kerberus, I genuinely think my brain would take a second to get there. Interesting. Kerberus is the one that confused you. I feel like I've heard... Sorry, I can probably hear Malcolm crying. Just while we're here, I think it's important to note that Malcolm basically heard you're covering dogs and was like, hi, hello, I'm here to star in the show. Yes. You will likely hear some yelping or whining or barking because he wants all the attention and he can't fathom it going to anyone else. Puppy says, I too can podcast. Yes, I too am Big Scary Dog. So I had heard Kerberos more and more over the last few years because that is the way you pronounce it from the ancient Greek. It's spelled with a K. The same way that you you hear like – I've more and more recently have been hearing Achilles and Patroclus instead of Achilles and Patroclus, which is what I grew up hearing. I think it's just because Cerberus, Kerberus is actually a word that I read more. And because mm-hmm. I grew up in America, grew up hearing Cerberus, that's just what my brain gives me. So when people say it aloud, it's so rare. <laughs> it's, if it's our podcast, maybe. But everywhere else, I don't – it's not a word you hear every day. No, it's not. And I can't even guarantee which one I'm going to stick with for this episode. I, I'll probably flip between Kerberos and Cerberus a lot without realizing it. Is there a third version? Because it'd be very funny to have three dogs and have Cerberus, <gasps> Kerberos, and, you know, the third one. I'm going to go with Cerberus, Kerberos, and Kyle. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> no. Tracy, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. It's done. It's like the hyenas from (laughs) Lion King. The two hyenas that are legit and the one that's just here. The one goofy one, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Today we're talking about Kerberos, the famous three-headed dog. Before we jump into his story specifically, I want to briefly talk about the role of dogs in mythology. Interesting literature describes the role of dogs in mythology as that of vigilance and loyalty. They say that this idea of dogs as watchful and vigilant goes back to classical myth. The most famous example is Kerberos, the three-headed dog that guarded the entrance to the underworld in Greek mythology. Hecate, the Greek goddess of witchcraft, was said to be accompanied by a pack of fighting dogs or hellhounds. Indeed, in some depictions of her, Hecate, like Kerberos, has three heads, one of which was a dog's head. Dogs are also the symbols of and are closely associated with loyalty. In the Middle Ages, they were symbols of feudal loyalty or marital fidelity. As Hans Biedermann notes in his excellent work, the Wordsworth Dictionary of Symbolism, Cultural Icons and the Meanings Behind Them. A common name for pet dogs is Fido, which literally means faithful. Never met a dog named Fido. It's a famous dog name the same way that Spot is, but you don't meet a lot of dogs with those names. Yeah, never once. 
So while we're talking about pronunciation of Greek mythological figures, Hecate is another one that throws me off whenever I hear it. It's Hecate, not Hecate? I don't genuinely couldn't tell you which one it Mm. super is because I've heard Hecate, I've heard Hecate, I've heard Hecate. Again, I read this word so much more. I know. I know. I promise I'm smart in writing. (laughs) (laughs) I promise nothing. (laughs) All right. So throughout mythology, we tend to see dogs representing the idea of loyalty, companionship, and protection. You also often see this depicted in art, especially of the Baroque and Romantic period. In those paintings, if you see a dog, it's likely meant to show that the subject of the painting is loyal or has those loyal qualities. This idea of loyalty and vigilance is especially true in the Kerberos myth as he is the guardian and protector of the dead and a faithful companion to Hades. But aside from the Disney movie Hercules and a few other pop culture references, I personally don't know too much about our fluffy friend Kerberos. So I was really excited to dig in and get an understanding of this character as a mythological figure. It's really fun doing this back-to-back with the Sphinx, going from Mm -hmm. cat to dog and all the attached symbolism, because I feel like we all have in our heads just dog good, cat, at least sneaky, cat, you know, mischievous. And being the guardian of the underworld Yes, you're being a guardian, but also the underworld, not all fluffy clouds and rainbows goodness. No, not at all. There are parts of it that are good, and we'll see that Kerberos can either be very sweet and loving or vicious and ferocious. It just depends on your motives and whether or not you're supposed to be where you are. Oh. (laughs) So let's get into the origins and the appearance of Kerberos. The earliest mentions of him occur in Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey around the 8th century BC and in Hesiod's Theogony. Homer does not name or describe Kerberos, but simply refers to Heracles being sent by Eurystheus to fetch the Hound of Hades, with Hermes and Athena as his guides. As with all myths, especially Greek myths, The story is ever-changing, so while the first mention of Kerberos may not even refer to him by name, the next story by Hesiod describes him as the offspring of Echidna and Typhon. In this version, Kerberos was 50-headed, ate raw flesh, and was the brazen-voiced hound of Hades, who fawns on those who enters the house of Hades, but eats those who tries to leave, sometimes even being depicted as part snake due to his parentage. Okay, Echidna was just having these intense children left, right, and center. Oh, yes. Very dramatic children. The snake thing, I I didn't know that at all. No, I didn't either, and it comes up a lot. Either he's depicted as being part snake, or in some depictions, his fur is made out of snake in kind of a Medusa hair way. In other times, each little fur follicle is a tiny snake? That's the, that is what it is. You cannot tell me otherwise. <laughs> yes. I mean, the, again, the same way that you could say every hair follicle where it's like Medusa is typically depicted with like, I don't know, 30 snakes on her head instead of 4,000. <laughs> Calculate the number of snakes on Medusa's head. Multiply it by 20 bajillion and then you'll have Cerberus. Then, yeah, then you have him. <laughs> 
There were so many different ways that he was depicted. The idea of a really large three-headed dog is actually only one of many and took a little while to come and, and solidify into that form. In fact, Pindar apparently gave Kerberos 100 heads in his writing, while Sophocles in his Women of Trachis makes Kerberos three-headed, and in his Oedipus at Colonus, the chorus asks that Oedipus be allowed to pass the gates of the underworld undisturbed by Kerberos, called here the untamable Watcher of Hades. Later, Euripides describes Kerberos as three-headed as well, but also adds in that he's three-bodied. And he says that Heracles entered the underworld at Tanneron, where he says that Kerberos was not given to him by Persephone, but rather he fought and conquered Kerberos. Quote, for I had been lucky enough to witness the rites of the initiated, an apparent reference to his initiation into the Eleusinian mysteries, and says that the capture of Kerberos was the last of Heracles' labors, something we will definitely dig into in a little bit. I'm sorry, a three-headed, three-bodied dog is just three dogs. It's just three dogs! <laughs> Are they doing it like one tail? What is that? <laughs> oh my god, could you imagine? Yes, it's basically a rat king of dogs. <laughs> Thank you, I hate it. Yeah, okay, so if you scroll down a little bit, you can see a fun drawing I actually think you'll really like. Oh, I really do. So would you like to describe this piece of art for everyone? Yeah, it's <laughs> – so this is by William Blake, which, yes, it's it's so by William Blake. <laughs> it It's just a lot of very, like, gestural shading of this dog kind of laying in what looks like the mouth of a cave. And behind the mouth of the cave, there's very likely fire because it's got that fiery glow. Mm -hmm. And this dog, which is the traditional one-body three heads the dog kind of has vaguely pit bully features to the face oh yeah like the, it kind that of looks wide almost dragonish to me yeah that wide grinning mouth that you see both a in pit bulls and b in a lot of european dragon depictions mm -hmm. but that dog is both very skinny you can see its ribs and also uncannily muscular yeah is that a bone in its paw Probably. It, <laughs> so, uh, no, oh my god, no, it's a person. That's a <gasps> face. That's a whole person, you're right. Okay, nice. so this was uh, this is called uh, Kerberos by William Blake, and it was created sometime between 1757 and 1827. It was made using a mix of ink, chalk, and watercolor paint. This is most likely depicting Kerberos guarding the underworld entrance. I can't wait for people who check this out on the Instagram to see it because this is not the type of art that I think people picture coming from the mid-1700s to the early 1800s. Yeah, here's a piece from just 100 years before by Francisco de Zubaran in 1634 called Heracles and Kerberos. I'm going to ask the question I always ask like a broken record. I want to know if this was painted with those muddy brown tones that mix together, or if the painting aged that way. And I'm gonna guess, because of the age, that this was glazed and then yellowed over time. It definitely looks like that if you look at the shading of, of Kerberos. It's just muddied enough that it looks like the fading of a some kind of top coat uh, glaze. Uh, friends, if you're making art, use archival quality 
stuff. Let this be let this be your example. Yeah, stuff. when you're making art in 1634, make sure that your varnish is archival quality. Yes, contact your ancestors on the Ouija board and say, please. <laughs> so in this, we're getting a very muscular Heracles who looks like he's going to beat Kerberos over the head with a club. And there's more than three heads. There's at least four. And one is definitely participating. One is medium participating. The one in the back <laughs> is very anguished to even be there. And the one that's off farthest to the left just is so sad that it's a dog. It is. I didn't even notice that one to the left, to be honest, when I first looked at this. That dog is one of those dogs that like has torn up the house or ruined the toilet paper and feels so bad about it. And is like, Heracles, no, I am a good boy. I'm a good boy. Yeah, yeah. Kerbers is the goodest boy. <laughs> he isn't just a dog hanging around. He's got a job. He's got work to do. So let's talk about that. The primary job of Kerberos in Greek mythology was, as we know, watchdog for the underworld. He was known to be a faithful servant to Hades and is most often depicted moving along the banks of the river Styx. This river was the established boundary between the dead of the underworld and the living of Earth. Kerberos's main job was to prevent those who were dead from escaping the underworld, as well as keep the living from going in there without the permission of Hades. Notably, Kerberos was very kind and friendly to the dead, as well as any new spirits who entered the underworld. He would fawn over them and act as sweet as any dog in the mortal realm. However, he would also become savage and try to eat anyone who attempted to get past him and go back to the land of the living. I had to include that because I love that. I think it really shows the relationship that the ancient Greeks had with dogs, recognizing that they can be loyal and sweet and loving and friendly and also vicious and accomplish a goal or a task when needed. Yeah, dogs have always had a working relationship with humans, and I think this myth is a really great example of that. Mm-hmm. He's such a good boy. He just fawns over the new people. I That, like, melted my heart, the idea that he specifically is kind of like a welcoming committee. Makes them feel happy and safe. It's so cute. I like that he's well-trained. He's not one of those dogs that as soon as you walk into the door, they're jumping all over you and harassing you. Oh, like mine. Yeah, like my idiot dog who I'm working on. Sorry. That made me sound like a terrible dog owner. I love my dog very much. But he is almost 80 pounds and likes to try and jump on people when they come in. So we're working on that. He's young. You're still training him. I just, I get, if there's one thing I get judgy over, it is people who let their dogs treat strangers badly. Yes. This is dangerous for the dog anyway. Yes. <laughs> I could go on a whole rant about how people with big dogs have to like work extra hard because like if my dog does anything, people freak out compared to like if a really small dog kind of leaps or like swipes at someone with their paw, people just think it's funny. It's not funny when an 80 pound dog tries to poke you with his paw. <laughs> Listen, if you were a god of the underworld, you have to train your giant three-headed dog. It, those you are You to. have to. <laughs> it's the rules. We don't make them. All right. So in Virgil's Aeneid, Aeneas and the Sibyl encounter Kerberos in a cave where he, quote, lay at vast length, filling the cave from end to end, blocking the entrance to the underworld. Kerberos is described as triple-throated, with three fierce mouths, multiple large backs, 
and serpents writhing around its neck. In this story, the sibyl throws Kerberos a loaf laced with honey and herbs to induce sleep, enabling Aeneas to enter the underworld. And so we see that for Virgil, Kerberos guarded uh, the underworld against entrance, while other stories often also depict him as preventing souls from leaving. Right, he knows if you're supposed to be there or not. He knows if you're doing what you're supposed to do. He's such a good boy. Later, Virgil describes Kerberos in his, quote, bloody cave as crouching over half-gnawed bones. In his Georgics, Virgil refers to Kerberos with his triple jaws agape, being tamed by Orpheus playing his lyre. Later, Ovid has Kerberos' mouth produce venom and makes Kerberos the cause of the poisonous plant aconite, otherwise known as wolfsbane, or monkshood. Yes, venom! Yeah, so here's where I (laughs) went on a bit of a tangent. Well, first, according to Ovid, Heracles dragged Kerberos from the underworld, emerging from a cave, quote, where tis fabled the plant grew on soil infected by Kerberian teeth. And dazzled by the daylight, Kerberos spewed out a poison foam, which made the aconite plants growing there poisonous. So I went on a bit of a tangent exploring aconite plants. So we're going to talk about that for a little bit. Okay. Because I thought it was so cool to understand monkshood or wolfsbane. I've heard of it all the time. Didn't know much about it. So I have a picture here for you of aconite, of the plant. Okay, well, this plant, like every single flower and every single Georgia O'Keeffe painting, looks a little bit um, feminine, let's say. Oh, interesting. I just mean it was like, mm, pretty purple flowers. Like, that is all my brain did. Pretty. Oh. Yeah. End of, end of thoughts. I mean, yeah, it, ju- it just looks like... <laughs> <laughs> it's got the little hood on the top. Like, you can see where it's called monk's hood. Like, a little robes hood you can put right. up. Yeah, like a little cape hood. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, it's that soft purple. I think of that color as being kind of like orchidy or ar- ar- irisy isn't that the color irises are yeah uh lilacs too yeah and it's got that interior that it's instead of being like yellowy it's actually greenish with mm-hmm. black around it mm-hmm. I, it looks really delicate actually it does look delicate uh people grow them in their gardens i saw a bunch of stuff online about care for them but the thing that i got really excited about was learning about uh monk's hood or wolfbane poisoning so if you are poisoned with this plant, your symptoms may appear almost immediately and usually no later than one hour after dosing. Uh, with large doses, death is almost instantaneous. Death usually occurs within two to six hours in fatal poisoning, and the initial signs are gastrointestinal, including nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. This is followed by a sensation of burning, tingling, and numbness in the mouth and face, and a burning in the abdomen. Treatment of poisoning is mainly supportive. All patients require close monitoring of blood pressure and cardiac rhythm. Gastrointestinal decontamination with activated charcoal can be used if given within one hour of ingestion. The major physiological antidote is atropine, which is used to treat bradycardia, which is a slow heart rate. So this poison slows your heart rate down, so they give you medication to bring your heart rate back up. That's about all they can do. That's awesome. That's awesome. I wish I was a good gardener because our 
townhouse came with nightshade growing in the garden, and mm-hmm. I would just love to have all these beautiful poisonous plants. That's so cool. It is cool. They're usually really pretty, too. So had to go into a little tangent there because I'd always heard of monkshood and wolfsbane. Didn't realize that there is a myth that it came from the mouth of Kerberos because he spit poison into the earth. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. So there are two very famous myths for Kerberos. The first I mentioned already, which is Orpheus lulling him to sleep in order to sneak into the underworld. And the other one that I'm going to be focusing on today is Kerberos' capture by Heracles as Heracles' final labor. And I think it's worth referencing here for folks who don't know as well that Hercules, like you think of in the Disney movie, Hercules, mm-hmm. the big hero, is the same as Heracles. Yes. Oh, thank you for mentioning that. I f- forgot that wasn't like totally common knowledge. Yes. Right. Heracles and Hercules, essentially, for these purposes, the same character. Right. And like many mythologies associated with different names, there are different adventures, but pretty much just picture the Disney character you're already thinking of. Yes. <laughs> yes. So in this myth, and where we'll be picking up the story that I'm telling today, is that Heracles has completed 11 out of his 12 labors uh, that he owes Eurystheus. So he's aiming to complete the final labor and be free from Eurystheus. All right, Rowan, are you ready for my story today? Yeah. Having completed 11 out of his 12 labors, Heracles stood before Eurystheus, beaten and bloodied, but certainly not broken. He'd slain the Nimian lion and the Lernaean hydra. He'd captured the Cretan bull and tricked Atlas into getting the golden apple of Hesperides. He'd completed every task that was asked of him, and now only one task remained. Perhaps this was the most difficult one of all. It wouldn't shock Heracles for Eurystheus to put the most challenging task last. Nothing would be more devastating than to come this far only to fail at the end. So Heracles would not fail. It simply wasn't an option. Eurystheus declared in a voice that echoed through the halls that Heracles' final task was to capture the three-headed beast Kerberos from Hades. Heracles almost sank to his knees in shock and despair. It would be easier to steal the thunderbolt from Zeus's own hands than take Kerberos from his master. As guardian and protector of the underworld, Kerberos wouldn't simply walk away at a simple, Here, boy. No. No, this task would require an overwhelming amount of strength, cunning, and a fair bit of good luck. First, he needed to find a way into the underworld. One of Kerberos's jobs was to ensure that no living mortal went into the underworld without permission. Seeing as Heracles had no intention of entering the underworld in the traditional way, he needed to find a different way in. Fortunately, he found a path through the mountains that led into the underworld. Unfortunately, it was also filled with terrible monsters. This, however, did not deter Heracles in the slightest, and he slew them all with ease. Finally, he entered into the underworld, with the dark caverns looming ominously above him. 
He made his way slowly through the dark tunnels, avoiding the sharp ends of stalactites as they pierced into the air. As he rounded a bend in the tunnels, he noticed two figures before him. They were bound to chairs and struggling to get free. Angry, writhing serpents served as the ropes that bound them to the chairs in which they sat. The two men looked up as Heracles approached, and he could see the panicked, desperate look in their eyes. Please, they begged, please, you must help us. We are Theseus and Pirithos, and we are being punished by Hades. Heracles thought for a moment. He knew he would risk the wrath of Hades if he freed the men. But he also knew he could use allies in this dark and ominous place. So he stepped forward and freed Theseus from his bonds. The snakes hissed and slithered out of the way as they released the man from their grasp. Next, Heracles went to freeze Pirithous, but the snakes would not move. Suddenly the world began to shake. Violent rocking caused the stalactites to begin falling around the three men, and Heracles had to jump out of the way to avoid a particularly sharp chunk of stone. So as the quaking subsided, Heracles stood and brushed the dirt off of himself. He looked to Pirithous with an apologetic expression and informed him that while he was not an expert in omens, he knew when to accept one when he saw it. So he turned, and he left the man bound to the chair. Heracles made his way deeper and deeper into the underworld, and with every twist and turn in the path, he kept waiting for someone to jump out of the darkness and attack him. By the time he made it into a particularly large chamber with a sleeping Kerberos in the center, he was almost relieved. That is, until the head closest to him blinked open its eyes slowly and looked straight at him. A low growl rumbled from the chest of the large beast. Heracles could tell, even with the dog laying down, that he was at least twice his size, if not larger. A booming voice echoed through the chamber, asking Heracles why he was there. And though he couldn't see the person to whom the voice belonged, he didn't need to. Heracles knew the voice of Hades when he heard it. Ancient and powerful. His voice echoed in the way that only the voice of a great god could. So Heracles was stuck. He could lie, or fight, or try to trick his way out of the situation, but he was unlikely to succeed in any of those scenarios. With the power of Hades before him, he knew he had only one way to get out of this situation alive and successful. So he told the truth. He told the great god of the underworld that he'd snuck into his domain in order to steal his dog and complete his final task. Hades, amused by the idea of this task, decided to give Heracles a chance to succeed. If he could wrestle Kerberos into submission with no weapons, then he could lead him out of Hades to complete the task. Heracles was delighted by this decision as he knew he could wrestle Kerberos under control. 
The two agreed on the challenge, and Heracles immediately leapt onto the back of the giant beast. He grabbed one of the heads and squeezed it as tightly as he could, until he could feel the beast begin to give up its fight. Hades called out for him to stop, but the rage and fire filling his blood would not subside, and he ignored the request. That is, until he felt himself knocked to the ground by Hades' power. As he hit the stone, his rage only grew, and without thinking, he pulled out his bow and shot the god in the chest. Hades was not dead. Such a simple act could not kill a god, but he was stunned, and he was unable to move for a moment, which was all Heracles needed in order to regain his senses and flee with Kerberos at his heel. He made his way out of the underworld and back into the hall of Eurystheus with Kerberos at his side. As Heracles entered the large room, Eurystheus sat up in his chair in shock and horror as the three-headed dog entered the room with Heracles. To Heracles' shock, and also his delight, Eurystheus admitted that he did not think that Heracles would be able to accomplish the task. His eyes darted between the three heads of Kerberos as he spoke, as if he was waiting for the dog to attack him at any moment. Finally, he declared that Heracles was to return Kerberos to Hades. Smug in his victory, Heracles picked up the giant dog and carried him back down into the underworld and returned him to Hades and Persephone. Kerberos, upon seeing his master in the underworld, bounded over to Hades in pure joy. All three of his heads were panting in excitement and his tail whipped back and forth. And thus, he took up his post once again as the official guardian and goodest boy in the underworld. (laughs) I have never really examined that last labor very closely. And actually, this is kind of important for anyone who doesn't know The 12 labors of Heracles happened because Hera basically bestowed temporary insanity upon Heracles, Mm -hmm. and he killed his wife and children, or sometimes just his children. There's a lot of different tellings, and temporary insanity from a god is not an excuse for crimes in this world of mythology. So, long story short, he ended up having to serve... Eurystheus, the king of Tyrannus and Mycenae, for 12 years. Yes. And that was kind of his punishment. And it's so interesting the way that you included and emphasized that he chose to tell the truth, because that is, to me, such a key that this is the last trial, because he's kind of become a better person. Even though he can't put his rage aside, even though it's still his downfall, he shows these moments of having learned something. Yeah, and... and I specifically kept the version where he shoots Hades. He doesn't do that in every version of the myth. And it's not even super clear why he does it. Oh. But he, usually it's described as he he goes to wrestle Kerberos and then for some reason shoots Hades and leaves. So I, I included that because I think Heracles is an, an interesting character and it just made it a more interesting story for him to kind of lose himself for a bit. Mm-hmm. But um, he... Uh, we should cover Heracles at some point on the podcast. It was really fun to get to explore this because there's not a lot of myths about Kerberos. He's not really an active character in story very much, although he's in the background of a lot of them. 
I feel like Kerberos, like many monsters in Greco-Roman stories, is really just a tool for the hero. Yes. They're not fully fleshed out because they're just a plot point more than a character that needs attention. Absolutely. He's so this this next part we'll get into it, but he's kind of Zeus has his lightning bolt, Poseidon has his trident, Hades has Kerberos. He's kind of the the ultimate possession weapon, you know, whatever you want to call it. That's what this this dog is to Hades. And I think it was really interesting that it wasn't kill Kerberos. It was capture him, take him out, and then bring him back. Right. Yeah. They're, because I don't know that in that Hades would be able to let that happen. He He's kind of up for the game, right? Right. There's this element of the gods being like, sure, this is interesting. You know, this is mixing it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But if he was going to kill Cerberus, I don't think that that would be acceptable. No, no, it wouldn't be at all. And I like the idea of, of Heracles being like, yo, can I just borrow your dog for a minute? I got to prove something. And Hades is like, yeah. And the fact that he's proving something with an act that is so inherently masculine. In Mm -hmm. ancient Greek society, wrestling was such a thing that Mm -hmm. the men would do and practice. And we kind of talked about it very briefly in the Achilles and Patroclus episode. But Heracles is like peak man. Mm -hmm. And so he is. Wrestling was like his thing. Right. Doing the peak man activity with his intense rage. It It's just so funny that that this dog has become a tool to talk about manhood a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. Kind of the opposite of cats. I'm really glad you touched on that. So now let's talk about why there are three heads. I kind of hinted at it before, but uh, the number of heads for Kerberos fluctuated anywhere from one to 100. But eventually it seemed to settle and stay steady at three. Mythographer Fulgentius allegorizes Kerberos' three heads as representing the three origins of human strife, nature, cause, and accident. And he drew on some earlier speculation about Kerberos and then uh, added on that it could also symbolize the three ages, infancy, youth, and old age, at which death enters the world. Nuh-uh, look at the mm-hmm. Sphinx myth overlap. I know. I, I had to include that. It was too perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Hold on. Is nature cause an accident, like the animal vegetable mineral of... <laughs> of strife? I think so. I don't understand. Cause is so general to me. Like, what is the cause of strife? Oh, it's cause. Cause it's is cause. the cause of strife. It's because. <laughs> it, it because. I don't know. I just had to include the the idea of the trilogy. Um, and then the Byzantine historian and bishop Eusebius wrote that Kerberos was represented with three heads because the positions of the sun above the earth are three, rising, midday, and setting. Later mythographers note that the three brothers, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, each have tripartite insignia, associating Hades three-headed Kerberos with Zeus's three-forked thunderbolt and Poseidon's three-pronged trident. Oh, I didn't threes, know that was threes, a thing. Threes across the board, all over the place. Threes are such a powerful, magical, mythological number in tons mm-hmm. and tons of pantheons. We see it all the time, but I did not know that the 
three-forked thunderbolt was Zeus specifically. And I never really considered that Cerberus would be a symbol Uh of Hades. Uh Uh-huh. Isn't that so good? And that explains his three heads. It makes him Hades' most powerful item, his his most powerful weapon, his guardian dog, the same way that the, the trident is Poseidon's weapon, like... How cool is it that what Hades wields is Kerberos? It's interesting because Kerberos is a companion, but not in the same way that we think about dogs, like as as pets, as as companions for our emotions. Cerberus is just as much a tool for Hades, mm-hmm. if not more so, than he is like a jolly, happy friend. And right. yes, we see in stories that Cerberus is kind and they does have a relationship with Hades, but Teeth is basically the primary function of him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's a working dog, and and you can see that relationship. He is often depicted in art and literature throughout the centuries. I mean, we still talk about him today. He guards the third circle of hell in Dante's Inferno. The Iliad references the Twelve Labors of Heracles. Kerberos is also in more modern works, like, obviously, the Disney movie, Hercules, that you and I love so dearly as well as the Harry Potter series, where he goes by the name Fluffy. Yes, and they put him to sleep with music. We're getting that liar reference. Mm-hmm. The capture of Kerberos was a popular theme in ancient Greek and Roman art. The earliest depictions date from the beginning of the 6th century BC. In Greek art, the vast majority of depictions of Heracles and Kerberos occur on attic vases. Although there is a now-lost Corinthian cup, which shows Kerberos with a single dog head, and a relief fragment from around 590 to 570 BC, which apparently shows a single lion-headed Kerberos. In Attic Bay's paintings, Kerberos usually has two dog heads, though in other art, he is three-headed, so it varies based on time and location. Occasionally, in Roman art, Kerberos is shown with a large central lion head and two smaller dog heads on either side. Rowan, if you scroll down, I have a picture here of a vase from 530 BC showing Heracles and Kerberos. So Heracles is wearing the Nimean lion on his head and is holding Kerberos by what looks like a leash. Um, And there's multiple legs happening. It looks like there's more than one body. So we have black dog portion, red dog portion, white dog portion, with these snakes coming out randomly mm-hmm. all over the front of Cerberus's body. It The snakes are weird. The snakes Snakes are weird. I mean, in I've never seen anything like this. Like there's snakes coming out of the tips of their noses, along their back. I think from under the belly, maybe. Yeah, but, the paws. Yeah, and this has a quality that I think people will be most familiar with from ancient Egyptian art. It's very flat. Mm-hmm. All the figures are turned sideways, but they're not trying to express dimension in any way. Yep. If you go down a little bit further, there is a statue of Kerberos and Hades. I like this one specifically because look how tiny Kerberos is. Yeah, Hades is huge and frankly looks like how people normally imagine Zeus, like long curly hair, long curly beard, holding a staff with the big old robe. Mm-hmm. And he has a kind of square hat sort of thing. And then 
Cerberus is little. Cerberus is like a mid-sized, not lap dog, but certainly not big old dog. Like the, yeah. the dog comes up to just below Hades' waist, which either means his thigh. It's like his thigh. It's not even his hip. Hades is either giant or Cerberus is very ferocious and tiny. I think I think in this case it might be the he's kind of a normal sized like in this case he's just a normal sized three-headed dog. Like the thing that makes him unique is his three heads, not his giant size. So I love that because I just haven't seen that as much in art. I hadn't really imagined why the head number went down. I just sort of assumed like a hundred heads is too many to manage in a story. It's just too many it's too heads. Too many to manage in any context. <laughs> Imagine feeding all those mouths the kibble. Oh, God. Oh, but all to one stomach. So oof. I don't know how that would go. Now, he might have multiple stomachs. You don't know. He could be part cow. He could be. I don't. He's, <laughs> he's part snake. So at this point, who knows? <laughs> more and more and more animals get added to the mix. Yeah. We've mentioned lion, snake, dog. There's so much. It's true. I really did gloss over the lion thing. The lion just felt like such an outlier, like Cerberus randomly being a lion. Not even part lion, but just full lion. A full lion makes no sense, but the middle head being lion and the other two heads being dogs I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I like the depictions of Cerberus, and these are always more modern, where the heads also fight with each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Like a bunch of dogs on one leash. If you've ever had multiple dogs that close together, you know that's exactly what would happen. <laughs> so let's talk about a fact that I've mentioned on the podcast that is incorrect. And that is... No. The name Kerberos meaning spot. Oh, no. I knew you were going to say it. What? No. I know. So the website centenii antiqui writes that quote a good friend at professor mortis asked me yesterday if the internet rumors are right that the etymology of kerberus or the latin cerberus indicates spotted because it is cognate with the sanskrit carbara sabala which is spotted or speckled and therefore that it is related to our pet name spot this is a nice story but like many nice stories it's probably not true Things Kerberos does not mean. Spot or spotted. Growling thing. Flesh-eating. Heavy-headed. New proposals. Again, from Centenii Antiquae. From the Proto-Turkic, Karaburu, meaning black wolfhound, or the Phoenician root, which I can't pronounce, which refers to hound of the earth. Spencer McDaniel writes for Tales of Times Forgotten, saying that, first, let's get something out of the way. Kerberos does not mean spot or spotted. It does not mean that in Greek, nor is there any word in Greek, with this meaning to which the name Kerberos might be related. Although most scholars still believe it is likely that the Proto-Indo-Europeans believed that some form of dog or dogs guarded the underworld, most of them no longer believe that it is possible to reconstruct a Proto-Indo-European root for the name Kerberos. The German scholar Bernfried Schlereth dealt a major blow to the hypothesis linking Kerberos's name with the Sanskrit word meaning spotted in an article titled The Dog Among the Indo-Germans. Schlereth argues based on comparative mythological evidence that the Proto-Indo-Europeans believed that there was not one but two dogs who guarded the underworld, one of them white and the other black. 
He further contends that the use of the word to describe the two dogs does not mean that both dogs are spotted, but rather that the two dogs are of different colors. So that is my research onto why Kerberos does not mean spot. I have always heard that story. Same. And I think it's so funny that people are really in this debate about whether this dog was spotted. I know, I know. It's funny. It seems like people who are in the kind of scientific and literary community are like, well, clearly it doesn't mean spot, but what does it mean? And the rest of us out here are like, it means spot, funny dog name, like not digging into it any further, which is totally something I I did. Like I thought his name meant spot for years. Right. That's such an internet thing, right? And also, of course, we don't look into it. Of course. It's too funny to look into the truth of it. Well, and it makes sense when you hear like, oh, it's a proto-Indo, you know, a proto-Greek word meaning spot, like, there's enough in there that it's one of those, like, I don't know enough about language to dispute it, but it sounds right. Right, exactly. (laughs) You know? So I had to include that at the kind of end of my research because we were so excited that we thought his name meant spot, and it doesn't. It probably means black wolfhound or hound of the earth or something like that. It sounds like one of those things that you do in, like, that lying game where you're trying to convince someone that something is true, so you say it with enough confidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. That's totally what this sounds like. I love that game, for the record. I hate um, it. <laughs> <laughs> I get so stressed about lying. Awesome. Lying games, ugh. Like, uh, uh, One Night Ultimate Werewolf, kind of all that, or uh, uh, Among Us, oof, stress me out. I love One Night Ultimate Werewolf. I even I like it with the extended rules, though. Oh, same. But I'm not a good liar, and lying scares me, so. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> My final thoughts on Kerberos as a figure in mythology was kind of just around why is he still such a cultural touchpoint for us today? It's been thousands of years since his story was first told. To me, I think it's that because over the centuries, he's become something that we can all relate to. He's losing a lot of his monstrous features. His snake tail, the snakes all over him, his lion head. It all morphed into the form of a three-headed dog. Think of that statue of Hades with a normal-sized dog with three heads. Mm -hmm. That is something cute. That's something we can relate to. It's just weird enough that it makes it interesting, but not so weird that it makes it grotesque. A dog is something pretty much everyone can understand. And along with Kerberos's loyalty and general trainability, it makes him a really interesting figure. He's not vicious for the sake of being vicious. He's not violent unnecessarily. He's a, he's a dog. He's a pet. And we all know our pets and love our pets. And so to me, that has made him a really longstanding figure because he's not a wild animal. He's something different. And it's something that we can all relate to even thousands of years after he was first brought into the mythos. So I think he's a very good boy. I would hug and kiss all three of his heads. I think there's a couple things happening here. I mean, today, modern folks really don't like to think of animals working. They just don't. No one... People just don't like to hear about animals having jobs. So there's Mm -hmm. definitely that kind of removal, um, which is... 
you know, something that we could get into, but it has bled into this mythology, I think, in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. also, we want our monsters to be redeemable and multifaceted in a way that the ancient Greeks really didn't seem to. They right. made their monsters monstrous. And I see so often in media now people taking monsters and wanting to show that they are good or that they could have been good or mm-hmm. that they have these facets to them. And while I personally love that because I love a complex character and I love a monster, I also love monsters being terrible and scary and awful. And Cerberus being a dog that we want to see in a good way because he's a dog is so much more interesting to me when he is also horrifying and terrible. Mm-hmm. And making him all good boy all the time, I think, doesn't serve the stories that he functions in. No, it doesn't. And But it, to me, what it does is kind of that the same thing of you love the villain who loves you. Like, he's this dog with the capacity to be really vicious and violent and protect you. But if you're either his owner or doing the thing you're supposed to be doing, he's really sweet. It's like that that kind of concept draws in a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think you see that in him. And I think you're right, too, where he he's I, I, the only way I can think of it is he's monstrous enough to be interesting, but not enough to be grotesque. He has also, I think, gotten pulled into the good guyification of Hades. A hundred percent. Like right now. Everyone is just making Hades this misunderstood emo boy, which, again, I want to reinterpret Greek myths forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's so fine and cool. Mm -hmm. But if we go back to the ancient Greek, Hades was not all good guy. Not even a little bit. His bar was on the floor compared to his brother's. Uh, yeah, he was, I mean, he also was a rapist, just yeah. like his brothers. Yeah. Um, and it adds dimension to the story in the way that people need now to have him be the good guy, the misunderstood mm-hmm. good guy with his puppy down stuck in the dark. But there's this other world that is the neutrality of the underworld, mm-hmm. the fact that you don't need to be a good guy to have stories told about you. I, I just love digging into that kind mm-hmm. of element. Like, let's give Cerberus back his hundred heads. Let's add the snakes back in. Let's Let make every it. single hair follicle a little snake. <laughs> I love it. It's horrifying. <laughs> My first thought was just like, oh, I got to feed all of them. Like, that's too many mouths. We talked about it. What if they feed on each other? And that's how he gets his hair groomed. And with that horrifying mental image, hey, Rowan, why don't you tell me something good? My something good this week involves you. We Ooh. played, <laughs> we got online and played the geo guessing game. <laughs> Joe, our friend Joe, uh, introduced me on Zoom to GeoGuessr, and a couple of us got online and played. And basically, depending on which theme you pick, it drops you in a place in the world. And mm-hmm. only using the Google imaging, you have to figure out where you are. And he is so good at it. He He's knows so which signs to zoom in on, where to go, 
what clues yeah. to look for. I am not particularly skilled at geography. No, I'm very bad at geography. <laughs> I was just having a good time. Tracy was our designated cheater. She mm-hmm. would look it up and then give us the info when we needed it. That was so fun for me because I would look it up and I would know where we were. Because we would find a clue, like a, a little city name, but we wouldn't even know what country it was. Or and sometimes when we play it, we'll, we'll find like a sign with the phone number and uh-huh. I'll look up the area code. Um, so then I'll be sitting there knowing where we are and just waiting for people to ask me for hints. And it was real fun. It was so cool. And then my favorite was when we found the the topic you could do. Dads of, I think it was called Dads of the World. And it was all photos that dads had taken or dads were in the image of the location. So like a dad mowing a lawn or like a dad on vacation. Or a dad taking a selfie and you had to only use the info that his angle gave you. It was so funny. We did make it Daddies of the World. Rowan and I very much made it Daddies of the World. I don't think uh, the other people on the call were as into that as we were. No, they didn't even want to play that one. (laughs) <laughs> no, they did. They did. I think they just couldn't. They, uh, our reaction was so weird. I think they weren't sure if we wanted to play it. <laughs> and Casey was on that call just throwing out like the most ridiculous answers because she's really bad at geography. So she was just there just for the laughs. It was so fun. My favorite moment was when Joe, who again is so good at this game, he's hosting. We had a picture from Dads of the World and he was like, oh, we're in Santa Monica. And I was like, I don't think it's Santa Monica. It was. It was. It was 100% was very, very close to Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was really funny. I live within driving distance of the location, and I was so confident it wasn't it. My favorite is when we had no information. It was just a dad and, uh, and a woman and a son, like a, 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 presumably his family, on a walk, and it was just in, in nowhere on a trail. And yeah. Joe figured out that it was Denmark. Yeah, it Somehow, he got within like a mile of the location just by randomly picking a spot in Denmark. It was so crazy. And the amount that people's clothing acts as a context clue is so fun. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is about Americans, but you could always tell when there was an American in the photo. You can spot them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tracy, tell me something good. My something good is a musical, sort of. Well, it's a musical. It's... <laughs> I it think is... it's either a musical or it's not, Tracy. Well, the thing is, it's a rock opera. Uh, okay, you know what? So... You're right. Sort of is the answer. <laughs> it is uh, Mozart, Mozart, l'opera rock. I can't do a French accent. But it is a French rock opera about Mozart. And I, I would describe it as Phantom of the Opera meets Moulin Rouge meets Green Day. <laughs> In 2010. Okay, sure. I'm obsessed. I have listened to the whole soundtrack a million times. I don't even speak French. You can find it on YouTube with English subtitles, and I watch the whole thing, and I can't stop listening to the music, and it's so good, and that's all I have to say about it. It's just been a genuine delight. Uh, Salieri has all the best songs, uh, which is hilarious because it's a, a- Yes. I can believe that 100%. <laughs> yeah, it's a musical about Mozart. Um, <laughs> Salieri's songs- Oh, they just go so hard. They're so good. Because villains always get the best fashion and the best song. And he's, it's cool because it's just, he's not even like a real villain, but his first song is literally this like dramatic, 
dark. Everyone's in almost like bondage-esque clothing. And it's just him like going feral in his own mind, hearing Mozart's music and like being so <laughs> crazed about it. Incredible. Incredible. Mozart, la opera, rock. It has brought me so much joy <laughs> over the last few My My poor friends have not heard me stop talking about it. <laughs> I will take that recommendation. Please put it on the recommendations page so that we can all listen to it in a language we don't speak. Highly recommend watching it. The costumes are spectacular. (laughs) They're so good. Look at us existing on the computer this week. That was our thing. I know. I know it was. Well, wherever you're listening to this, whether it's on a computer, in the car, or as you're doing chores about your house, we thank you for joining us today and remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Mm, or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our editor is Tyler Fetzik. Our music is by Taylor Ash. And our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. He'd slain the. He'd slain the Nimian. Nimian. Nimian? Nimian. Nimian? Nimian. It's because Nimian lion lion. is a weird flow. He'd slain the Nimian lion and then learn. He'd slain the. the, (laughs) He'd slain the Nimian lion and the Lernian hydro. Oh! Lernian hydro. I'm so sorry, Tyler. This is breaking me. He'd captured the Cretan bull. Cretan?